You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Carl just wanted to see me start the sermon out of breath. So he's like, I'm cutting that last song short. I thought we had one more verse in that song. But anyways, I guess not. But what a blessing to be together this morning. For those of you who are in person, of course, for those of you who are on Zoom as well. Uh, We almost took you to the mission field this morning. Uh, When I got in this morning, Ephraim said he was having trouble getting the air conditioner units working. And of course, you know me, I had absolutely no clue how to get them working. And it was going to be about 95 to 100 degrees in here. But fortunately, Ephraim figured out a way to get them going. We can't adjust them, so if it's too cold, we apologize. If it's not cold enough, we apologize. Uh, But at least they're blowing cold air. But I thought, well, a lot of us have been to tropical countries and worshiped with sisters and brothers in tropical countries where there is no electricity sometimes. And if there is no electricity, there's certainly no air condition. Maybe you get a fan. And the amazing thing is, once you get into worshiping the Lord, you kind of forget about that, at least for me. And then once the service is over, I look, and I'm absolutely drenched in sweat. And that's when I remember, oh, yeah, it was actually really hot in there. So, but anyways, we're grateful to the Lord for all the good gifts he gives us, even something as relatively insignificant as air conditioning on a hot day. Well, as all of you are probably aware, we have been working our way through the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua. And last week, Dan Moser gave us a message that kind of gave some of the highlights of the opening uh, seven chapters of the book of Joshua. And really, if you have been reading along with the schedule, those, those opening 12 chapters of Joshua are just, to me, just gripping and engaging account of how the Lord gave Israel victory in the promised land, even what Ephraim was just referring to a moment ago. You know, it starts with Joshua stepping into the shoes of Moses, and then this incredibly miraculous parting of the Jordan River, and Israel walks through on dry ground. The incredible wisdom and understanding of a Gentile prostitute that ultimately led to her salvation and the salvation of her whole household. The angel of the Lord himself appearing to Joshua. The incredible and miraculous falling of the walls of Jericho and Israel's incredible victory. Uh, A day unlike any other day where the Lord listened to the prayer of a single man, Joshua, and the sun stood still so that the victory could be even more complete. Uh, God raining down hailstones upon his enemies so that he was actually even more responsible for the total victory than the armies of Israel. But hopefully you have been reading along, and this is incredibly gripping and engaging and powerful narrative of the incredibly good and wonderful and powerful things that our God was doing when Israel was conquering the enemies in the promised land. But then at the end of chapter 12 and beginning in chapter 13, and hopefully you guys are there because in the reading assignment we should be reading chapter 15 together today. But basically at the beginning of chapter 13, the, the, the pace and the style of Joshua 
changes significantly. And all of a sudden, it's like everything just kind of comes to a pause. And we are given seven chapters, basically from chapter 13 to chapter 19, of just name after geographical name after geographical marker after city name. Almost seven continuous chapters of names that for most of us are incredibly difficult to pronounce, names for most of us that mean absolutely nothing to us. There's so many names in these chapters of Joshua that archaeology hasn't even begun to locate accurate sites for all of them. Uh, some of the place names, we really don't know where they were. And for many of us, at that point, our, our interest in Joshua starts to diminish. And as we start reading chapter 13 and chapter 14 and chapter 15, you start like looking ahead, wow, 16, 2, and 7, oh, and 8, 9, whoa. And you just kind of skip ahead. But then you get to chapter 20, and, and, and it, it changes a little bit. But I think we all in our flesh have that tendency. This book that we were reading just absolutely captivated and gripped by the accounts of the opening 12 chapters has dramatically changed. And it's become a book that for most of us we're saying, you know, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Do I even have to read it? I mean, these names mean nothing to me. I have I no idea even how to pronounce them. Can I just skip to the end of Joshua? And many of us may be tempted to do so. But what I'm going to try to do today is to share some insight into those chapters, to share some insight into that section of Scripture. Because really, for a lot of the people of God, those chapters would have been unbelievably exciting. As hard as it is for us to consider that, those chapters, they would not have raced through them. They would have read them slowly. They would have really thought and dug into all of those details that the Lord was giving. And so hopefully today we will be able to capture at least a little bit of that. You know, over the years, many of us have heard the phrase, divide and conquer, divide and conquer. Well, really, with the book of Joshua, it's the opposite. The book of Joshua is conquer. The first 12 chapters of the book is Israel conquering the promised land. And then comes the division, or the dividing of the promised land. So that, in fact, is the title of today's message. Not divide and conquer, but conquer and divide. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much, as always, for giving us an opportunity to come together uh, at your feet and around your word. And Lord, particularly today as we look at a, a section of scripture that for most of us is, is pretty challenging, and for many of us we're even tempted to, to skip over it, to not read it at all, or just to quickly read it and, and get on to the next thing. And God, I just pray that you would help us today in this time that we will have together to really consider why you have included this in your eternal word. And what is it that you want to speak to your people through this passage of Scripture? And so, God, as always, we pray for your wisdom and we pray for your help and we pray for the leading and the anointing of your Holy Spirit. 
Because even if we're reading John 3.16, we cannot rightly understand your word apart from you, apart from your Holy Spirit who is our teacher and our interpreter and our instructor in your word. And so we pray now that he would be present, that he would be speaking to each of our hearts. And we ask now, Lord, that all that we will do in this time together will ultimately bring you glory. And that as it always does, we pray that your word would change us. We pray that your word would change us. Even this part of your word that is hard for us, we know, Lord, because it is your word, it still has the power to change us. And Jesus, it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen. So I want us to read uh, a couple of, of, of verses from Joshua chapter 13. This was the reading assignment for Friday. And then a couple of verses from Joshua chapter 14. And this is going to kind of help us get a general intro into this larger section of Joshua, Joshua chapters 13 to 19. So Joshua chapter 13, uh, let's look at verses 7 and verse 8. And this is the Lord speaking to Joshua after his military campaigns had been completed. So after Joshua's conquest of the promised land, here are the specific instructions that the Lord gave to him. In verse 7, it says, And divide it, that is, the land, as an inheritance among the nine tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh. The other half of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites, had received the inheritance that Moses had given them east of the Jordan, as he, the servant of the Lord, had assigned it to them. Now let's jump then to the beginning of Joshua chapter 14 and read verses 1 to 3. It says, Now these are the areas the Israelites received as an inheritance in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel allotted to them. Their inheritances were assigned by lot to the nine and a half tribes as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Moses had granted the two and a half tribes their inheritance east of the Jordan, but had not granted the Levites an inheritance among the rest. So let's just take a couple minutes to talk about some of the key issues that are put in front of us in these verses. Again, most of us are incredibly familiar with Joshua as the leader of the armies of Israel. Joshua the conqueror. Joshua the one who led the conquest of the promised land. And he absolutely is all of those things. But what we see here as well is that another incredibly significant role in ministry that the Lord called him to was along with the high priest Eleazar to oversee the division of the land. And that was just as important in his life and in his ministry. In fact, this was the last great thing that Joshua did before the Lord called him home. 
So we see here that it was Joshua and Eleazar the high priest who oversaw at the Lord's instruction the division of the promised land that had just been conquered by the Israelite armies. We see here also that the allotments that were apportioned to the different tribes of Israel, they were apportioned by lot, which literally means casting some sort of stones or discs or something like that to determine which tribe would receive the next inheritance. In a modern sense, you may think of the NBA draft lottery where they pull out names and determine who gets which pick. Well, at this point in Israelite history, that was actually a legitimate way, if instructed by the Lord and overseen by the Lord, to determine the will of the Lord. Remember Aaron in his breastplate had two stones called Urim and Tumim. And when they were trying to determine the will of the Lord, they would ask the Lord a question and then they would throw these stones to the ground and the Lord would give an answer through the casting of these lots. Now this of course seems very, very strange to us. And with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and with the wisdom and the discernment that we receive through the Holy Spirit, it is no longer appropriate for us as followers of Jesus to cast lots. The last time in Scripture that lots were cast were when the 11 apostles cast lots to determine who would replace Judas Iscariot. But shortly after that, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and there is no record in Scripture of believers ever casting lots again. But here, that is how the land and the specific portions of the land that went to the specific tribes was determined. And you may remember in the book of Proverbs, there's a couple Proverbs that says, it's man that throws the lots, but it is the Lord who determines the outcome. So because it was God instructing Joshua and Eleazar to do it, and because they were absolutely putting their trust in the Lord, it was actually the Lord himself through the lots determining how the promised land would be divided up. But remember, if you are playing a board game, and most of us don't play board games anymore, and you roll the dice and you don't get the roll that you want, it's the Lord that determines the outcome of the dice. So if you are losing, that's probably because you need to learn some humility. I know I've had that lesson many, 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 many times as a game of quote-unquote chance doesn't turn out the way I want it to, but the Lord is determining the outcome. But of course, as believers now, we never, ever, ever cast lots anymore to determine the will of the Lord because the Holy Spirit has been given to us and we now have direct access to the heart and the mind and the counsel of God. But we also see here a distinction because it talks about the division of the land amongst nine of the tribes and a half tribe. Now again, we are called upon to remember a little bit of Israelite history. Remember the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember Jacob had 12 sons. And we know the names of probably most of those 12, if not all of those 12. Well, his name was eventually changed to Israel. And he, of course, became the father of the nation of Israel. And those 12 sons each became the head or the father of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So when you are reading accounts in the Old Testament, 
The fullness of God's people is always represented by the full 12 tribes of Israel. Anytime you have an Israelite gathering in the Old Testament, and it is not a full representation of all 12 tribes, it is not the fullness of God's people. And unfortunately, there are numerous, numerous occasions in the Old Testament when the people of God were not fully present with all 12 tribes represented. But we see this come to glorious fulfillment in the New Jerusalem. Because the New Jerusalem, remember, has 12 gates and 12 foundations. And the name of the 12 tribes are written on the gates of the New Jerusalem. And the name of the 12 apostles is written on the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem. Now, I may have that switched, but I think it's the tribes that are the gates and the apostles that are the foundation. But did you ever wonder why Jesus picked 12 apostles? Why not 10? Why not 13? Why not 20? Why not 8? It was because the apostles then represented the fullness of God's people in the New Testament. So the 12 tribes of Israel, they were the fullness of God's people in the Old Testament. Each tribe named for the son of Jacob that was the head of that tribe. Well, what we see here is that a couple of those tribes had already received their inheritance, had already received their portion of the promised land. Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Remember, while Moses was still alive and when they were defeating Sion and Og, kings on the east side of the Jordan, Reuben and Gad and part of the tribe of Manasseh came to Moses and said, hey, you know what, this land is great. We are more than happy to take this portion of the promised land as our inheritance. And the Lord through Moses said, absolutely. So Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh received their portion of the promised land, received their inheritance, their allotment, before the actual conquest of the promised land on the other side of the Jordan. So that's what is being referenced here. Now it gets a little bit more confusing because some of you may remember that Manasseh was not in fact a son of Jacob. Manasseh was actually a grandson of Jacob. It was in fact Joseph that was one of Jacob's 12 sons. And Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so it gets a little complicated because how the Old Testament gets to 12 changes from time to time. Oftentimes, Ephraim and Manasseh, though technically half-tribes, because they are grandsons of Jacob, sons of Joseph, sometimes they are referred to as half-tribes, sometimes they are referred to as full-tribes. So the way that the Old Testament gets to 12 when the fullness of God's people are present changes a little bit. Here it gets even a little bit more complicated because Manasseh, part of that half-tribe, so half of that half-tribe, was happy with an inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. But then half of that half-tribe of Manasseh actually took possession of land on the west side of the Jordan. 
That's why you see Manasseh mentioned here, and then you see Manasseh mentioned in chapter 17, I believe it is, when the rest of the tribe of Manasseh receives their inheritance on the western side. So it gets a little confusing. And of course, the reason why sometimes the count of 12 includes Ephraim and Manasseh as full tribes is because there was one tribe that did not receive an inheritance in the promised land. And that, of course, was the tribe of Levi. And we hear that mentioned here. So oftentimes, when looking at particularly the division of the land, the way you get to 12 is to count Ephraim and Manasseh as full tribes and not to count Levi, because the Lord said, I myself am Levi's inheritance. They will have no land, no allotted portion of the promised land of their own. I am their inheritance. Now the Lord did, of course, set aside cities for them to live in. But remember the Levites were the tribe that was charged by God to work at the tabernacle and then ultimately to work at the temple. So what we have in the beginning of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14 is the land has been conquered. It's time to divide the land. But Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh have already received their inheritance. So the nine tribes and the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, excluding Levi, are now waiting for their inheritance. And again, I want you just for a moment to think of what that would have been like. At that point, the nation of Israel is not like thumbing through the chapters of Joshua and saying, oh man, all the way to the end of 19 and then these cities of refuge in chapter 21. When do we get back to the good part? I mean, imagine again that you were an ancient Israelite and you knew that a piece of this land was going to belong to you and your family. You would have been so excited. You would, wouldn't even be able to contain yourself wondering, what portion does the Lord have for us? What portion does the Lord have for me? This wasn't a dry and boring section of scripture. This was thrilling. This was engaging. This was excited anticipation that had been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the making. And when you get to Joshua chapter 19, verse 49, it says, and the allotment, the division of the land was completed. The allotment and the division of the land was completed. So from 13 to 19, that's what you have. Let's just read a sample of this. Let's just look at the portion that Zebulun received. We won't look at the portion that Judah received because that is the most detailed and longest portion of this passage. I was tempted to read that, but I thought with my eyesight and the lighting up here and my struggle in pronouncing these names as well, that would be folly to try to read that. But let's just read from Joshua chapter 19, verses 10 to 16. And just for a moment, imagine that you were part of the tribe of Zebulun. Imagine the stories that you had been hearing since you were a child. 
Imagine the promises. Imagine the promises that your mom and dad and your grandma and grandpa had been talking about your whole life. But at that point, they were just promises. They were just stories. But now they were becoming real in a way that they never had before. Imagine for a moment you were part of the tribe of Zebulun as this portion was, of course, told at first orally but then was written down. It says, The third lot came for Zebulun, clan by clan. The boundary of their inheritance went as far as Sarid. Going west, it ran to Moriah, touched Dabasheth, and extended to the ravine near Jokneam. It turned east from Sarid toward the sunrise. I never thought I'd get choked up reading this portion of scripture. It turned east from Sarid toward sunrise to the territory of Kesiot Tabor and went on to Dabarath and went and up to Japhia. Then it continued eastward to Gath, Hefer, and Ethkazim. It came out at Ramon and turned toward Nea. There the boundary was around on the north to Hanathon, and it ended in the valley of Iftah-el. Included were Kathath, Nehalil, Shimon, Itlia, and Bethlehem, not the Bethlehem of uh, Jesus' birth. There were 12 towns and their villages. These towns and their villages were the inheritance of Zebulun, clan by clan. Now again, I apologize with my eyesight and the poor lighting up here, and even if I could see them clearly, my poor pronunciation, those were not perfect pronunciations. But imagine if you were part of the tribe of Zebulun. You were being told your portion of the promised land. You were being told the boundaries that it would extend to, and you were being told some of the cities that it would occupy. A free and glorious gift that God was giving to you and to all of your fellow tribesmen and women. This would have been unbelievably exciting. So when we get to a passage of scripture like this, when we get to a portion of scripture where we're looking at how long it lasts and we're trying to leaf through to the end and we're wondering why God put it in here, I would encourage each one of us just to pause and to say, okay, Lord, this is here and I'm going to dive in. You know, for some of you, you may actually even enjoy pulling up a, a map that gives a lot of the place names and shows the different allotments. If you're into geography, if you're into history, you might really enjoy that. I know I was doing that in preparation for this message. And it actually became even more engaging as you looked at the map of ancient Israel and, if you, and you looked at some of these names now on a map to see how the tribes actually received their inheritance. But on Friday night, Jose Ruiz shared with us outside. We had a wonderful time together. And one of the things that he said is he said that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable, valuable, useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness, that we may be fully equipped and prepared to do the work of God. 
Well, you see, Joshua chapters 13 and 19 actually fall into the category of all of Scripture. These names that are so hard for us to pronounce are actually breathed out by God as they were recorded in Scripture for us. They are actually profitable for us, for teaching, correcting, and rebuking, and instructing, and training in righteousness. Now, we may not grasp that immediately, but if we take God seriously, and if we take God's word seriously, that's how we should approach these seven chapters. Lord, these are of benefit. These are of value even to me. But a couple of things that we have the opportunity to remember when we get to a particularly challenging portion of Scripture. First of all, we get the opportunity to remember that God knows better than we do. God actually is perfect in how he put his word together. And when we start to call into question a passage of Scripture that doesn't really make sense to us or is just one that we want to read through quickly, what we're actually doing is we're calling into question the wisdom of God. God, why did you put this in here? You know, when we're reading the incredibly detailed portion of Leviticus about how animals were to be sacrificed, you know, we may say to God, well, why did you put this in here? But these passages of Scripture, at least for me, always give me an opportunity to say, you know what, God knows better than me. God knows what he's doing. Another thing that it reminds us of is that all of Scripture that the people of God had at any moment of time, all of Scripture was for all of God's people. Now, sometime, as folks living in the year 2021 in America, we think that all of Scripture should be uniquely tailored to us. And you know what? It's not. It is for you. All of it is for you. But the entirety of Scripture is not uniquely tailored for you, a member of the church in 2021 living in the country of America. All of Scripture that was available to the people of God at any given moment was for all the people of God. And so you need to understand that the Word of God is a lot bigger than you. The Word of God is a lot bigger than you. I just invited you to consider what the tribe of Zebulun would have been thinking when that account was given for the first time. They wouldn't have been bored and disinterested. You know, when we're in heaven, we may bump into some Zebulonites. And they may come up to you and say, man, when you read Joshua 19, 10 to 19, weren't you just in crazy excited? And you'll be like, um, yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. But these passages of Scripture remind us that the Word of God is far bigger than my own personal interest. And so very closely associated to that. You know, I know it really disappoints a lot of us, but the primary function of the Word of God is not to entertain you. You know, a lot of us read a passage of Scripture and we say, man, that was boring. And we start looking at our screen. Well, you know, that is so disappointing because God never said my chief purpose in giving you the Word of God was to entertain you and to be like a YouTube video or an Instagram post or a TikTok. No. And if you're going to the Word of God with that expectation, the Word of God will always disappoint you because God is not going to jump through that hoop. So a passage of Scripture like Joshua 13 to 19 remind us that God's primary function in giving us His Word is not to entertain me. And if I'm expecting it to be as exciting as a baseball game, I am doing an incredible disservice to God and to his word. But it also reminds us that when we 
make a decision to read God's word, whether we feel like it or not, whether we want to or not, whether it's interesting to us or not, when it makes sense to us or not, but when we say, you know what, God, this is your word. I trust you, so I'm going to read it. Every single time we make a decision to do that, to turn off our phone, or unless the Bible is on your phone, to turn off whatever else might distract you, when we make a decision to do that, I am absolutely convinced there is an incredible spiritual exchange every time. Even if you have no idea why you're reading what the priest was supposed to do with the liver of the calf offering, if you read that portion of scripture and you say in your heart and you say to the Lord, Lord, this is part of your eternal word for your people, and I am part of your people, so I'm going to read this. I guarantee you, even if it's unperceivable to you, there is an incredible spiritual transaction. And if you choose to do that for a month or for a year or for a lifetime, there is absolutely no telling where you will end up in the Lord. If you make it a regular practice to read every portion of Scripture that is put in front of you, there is no limit to how far you will go in the Lord. And it won't always be easy. It won't always entertain you. It won't always make sense to you. That's okay. You are just a very, 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 very small part of the entirety of the people of God that expands from the beginning to Revelation. Remember that. Remember that. And for a moment, be a Zebulonite and say, wow, those verses are awesome because God was telling me my portion in his promised land. Well, let's quickly go through a couple of others because those are just general applications to passages of Scripture that are hard for us, say, extended genealogies or detailed descriptions of sacrifices or the allotment of the promised land in the book of Joshua. Scripture will regularly put in front of us passages of Scripture that are challenging. But what maybe are some specific things that God has in his heart for us in reading these seven chapters of Joshua? Well, first of all, from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, land is incredibly important to the Lord. It is incredibly important to the Lord. Why? Because as God is giving the nation of Israel the promised land, as God is giving to each one of the 12 tribes their peace, their portion of the promised land, what is God saying? God is saying, I am your provider. Again, it's hard for us because we are not an agricultural society. But almost all of the ancient world were farmers. And land was everything. It was everything. Why? Because land produced food. And food sustained life. Without land, you were dead. It's very hard for us to wrap our mind around that kind of concept. But so much of God's people throughout the history of God's people, that's the way they would have thought. 
No land is death. Because God's good provision of us, for us, one of the most tangible ways he shows his goodness and his provision to us is by giving us land, land that produces food, food that sustains life. God is the giver of life. In fact, Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the fulfillment of Joshua 13 to 19 because he is the ultimate provider. He is the ultimate giver of life. But this land that God gave to the 12 tribes of Israel some 3,500 years ago was God saying, I am your provider. I give you everything that you need and in abundance. Second thing, it's incredibly practical. Imagine if all the residents of Philadelphia were standing in Camden, New Jersey, and God said, I'm going to part the Delaware River, and you two million people are going to cross the Delaware River, and Philadelphia is a, is a big city, it's got a lot of places to live, I want all two million of you just to cross the river and go live in the city. Imagine if that was all the instructions that God gave. I mean, there would be absolute chaos. There would be absolute chaos. There would be fighting. There would be quarreling. This is my house. No, that's my house. This is my yard. No, that's my, well, Philadelphia doesn't have many yards. That's my parking spot. No, that's my parking spot. It would be absolute chaos if God said to the entire citizenry of Philadelphia, outside the borders of Philadelphia, there's the city. I've given it to you. Go live in it. It would be chaos. So there's a very practical component to the division of the land. Each tribe knew what their specific allotment was. And so that, that detailed geography that's given to us in the description of the allotment is actually a blessing because the tribes understood what their portion was. And they could understand, this is what God has given me, and this is what God has given my brother Judahites, or my brother Benjaminites, or my brother Simeonites. You see, there's a very, very practical component to this. Imagine if the deed to your house or the lease to your apartment just said, hey, live someplace in Philly and pay me rent each month. I mean, that, that's crazy, right? So there's an incredible practical component to this division. A third thing, when you look at specifically how the divisions are given, oftentimes there are two components to it. One component is a description of the boundary of that portion of the land. And then a second component is a description of some of the specific cities that were in that portion of the land. And so basically what God was giving his people an opportunity to do was to slow down and to familiarize themselves with the good gift that he was giving them. Remember, for this generation of Israelites, this stuff was new. They had never lived there before. The only place that they had lived was in the wilderness. So as God gives the boundaries of each portion and then specifies some of the cities in each portion, he's really allowing each tribe, but really each Israelite, just to slow down and to really become familiar with the good gift that he was giving them the extent 
of the land that they were receiving, the abundance that was in the land that they were receiving. You see, our culture, it's, it's, it's so obviously forcing us to have such an incredibly limited attention span. Every form of media, it's forcing us to not be able to concentrate on anything. It's forcing us not to be able to focus on anything for more than a couple of seconds. That's what our culture is regularly cramming down our throat. Everything has to be so quick. That's not God. This is one of the reasons I believe that it's so dangerous to be immersed in social media. Because social media is... I don't really completely understand TikToks, but I know they can only be like a very brief period of time. And then you're watching the next, and, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next. It's just, it's reinforcing in us an inability to just stop. Joshua chapters 13 to 19 are giving you an opportunity to slow down. Slow down. Enjoy, savor, relish, becoming familiar with the incredible breath of God's good gift to his people, the incredible goodness of God's good gift to his people. That's why it challenges us, because it's fighting something in us that needs to change. Whenever you are fighting against a passage of the word of God, whenever you are wrestling with a passage of the word of God, what needs to change? The word of God? <laughs> I mean, can you see how, how absolutely crazy it is for us to say that out loud? But in our hearts, isn't that actually what we're saying? If there's a, if there's a passage of scripture that's hard for you, you need to change. And God, your Father, is saying, I love you, and I want to change you. That's why this is here. Do you think I like fell asleep when Joshua chapters 13 and 19 were put in your Bible? Do you think I recorded them in the eternal word and then later said, oh man, I blew that one? No. I put them there and I put them there even for you. And I know for me personally, one of the things, one of the good challenges that a passage of this, like, of this type gives me is to slow down, relish, savor, the extent of God's good gift. I encourage you to do that. I don't know what you have planned this afternoon, but I challenge you, read these seven chapters this afternoon, and I will be shocked if at the end you aren't glad that you did it. But even if you aren't, there still will be a spiritual transaction. There still will be a benefit because that's what the word of God promises. All of scripture, all of scripture, is beneficial, useful, profitable. Let's dive into this. John is there. We'll get to John. John is great. It's there. It's not going anywhere. If you spend an hour reading some place names in Joshua, God isn't going to zap John from your Bible. It's still there. Let's take on the challenge. So the breadth of the good gift of God, the, the abundance of the good gift of God. 
Another thing that we learn from this, and we sort of take it for granted, but we really see it in practical detail, providing land for an entire nation is not too much for God. I mean, just for a moment, think about that. Our God is so big, our God is so huge, that providing abundant, expansive, fruitful land for an entire nation is not too much for him. You know, many of us, we have problems finding a space for our own self to live. Or we have problems when kids come along, finding a space for our kids to live. You know, but God, for God to place an entire nation in a land that will be their own, for him, it's nothing. So as we read this passage of Joshua, we are reminded just how big our God is. And it was not challenging for him at all to provide an inheritance for the entire nation of Israel. Whoa, that's, that's beautiful. But you know what? Sprinkled in these chapters are a couple of individuals. We find out specifically the portion of land that Caleb and his family received. We find out specifically the portion of land that Joshua and his family received. We find out also a, a, a guy that's fairly unfamiliar to us, Zelophehad. We find out the portion of land that he and his five daughters received. So as big and as huge as God is in being able to provide an expansive, abundant, fruitful land for an entire nation, he never forgets individuals. How can he do that? How can he keep track of an entire nation of people and never forget a single person? God is awesome. I mean, God is awesome. And so in here, we have the specific portion that Caleb received. We had the specific exception that was made for Zelophehad and his daughters. We have the specific portion that Joshua received. So as God is providing the entire land to the entire nation of Israel, he's never forgetting a single person as well. That's so good. I mean, that's so good. That's the God we serve. Last two things we're going to look at. Are you guys still with me here? All right, last thing. I know I always go long. I apologize. I always say I'm going to be short. I'm going to be short, but didn't make it today. Two more things. We already touched on this, but the concept of land is absolutely central to God's purposes for his people from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. On the third day, God allowed land to appear from the lower waters. And he separated the lower waters from the land and he called it land and then on day six he creates occupants inhabitants for the land he creates all types of land animals and he creates humanity right there in genesis chapter one god is saying land is so important to me and land is so important to my people. I'm going to create a portion of my creation for them and call it land. 
And when I create them, I'm going to place them as inhabitants in that land. Genesis chapter 2, a parallel account of creation. God creates a specific piece of land and he calls it the Garden of Eden. And then he gets very specific and says, I'm going to create two individuals, Adam and Eve. And I'm going to place them in that good, abundant, luxurious land. Right there, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. God is saying land is absolutely central to who I am and the good things I have in my heart for my people. Fast forward to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did God repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly say to them? You yourselves will have no ownership in this land. You are simply aliens. You are simply wandering through. My father was a wandering Aramean. That's what the scriptures declare. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they had no portion in the land except a small piece for burial. And God said, this land, it's not for you, but it's for your descendants. I'm going to give this land to your descendants. The centrality of land and the purposes of God. And so then imagine that you were part of that generation under the leadership of Joshua that was taking possession of the promised land for the first time. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of promise and waiting and promise and waiting. And God finally said, now, you are the generation. You are the generation. And when Israel continued in unbelief and disobedience, what was the ultimate punishment? Captivity. Away from the land. God said, you have defiled my land that I gave to you. You have defiled it. The greatest form of punishment that God brings upon a disobedient nation of Israel is to remove them from the promised land. Why do you think even today Israel has, modern Israel has that right of return? There is something intrinsic in the account of Scripture that land is so key to who God is and the good things that he has for his people. But even as we look backward to the theme of land, we look forward as well. One of the things that Jesus said to his disciples when he was getting ready to go to the cross, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. God is preparing a place for us. Sometimes referred to as the new heavens and the new earth. Well, what is a new earth going to have? It's going to have land. It's not going to have any sea, actually. From what the book of Revelation tells us, there will be no sea. It's sometimes described as the new Jerusalem. But one of the greatest hopes that we have as believers is that Jesus has returned to the Father. And he is preparing an inheritance for us. He is preparing a portion of eternity for you. And you know what's going to happen? You know, when you get there and you start to discover just the incredible goodness and breadth and richness of your peace, of God's 
eternity, you're not going to want to race through it. You're not going to want to say, hey, God, just give me the names quick. Give me the names quick. Man, no way. All of eternity, we are going to worship and stand in amazement at the good inheritance that Jesus has prepared for us. We're going to say, really, Jesus, for me? This is for me? And Jesus is going to say, I haven't even started to show you what I have in my heart for you. This is eternity. Eternity is Joshua chapter 13. It doesn't end at 19. It ends never. It never ends. All of eternity, we stand in amazement. We bow and worship as Jesus continues to say, and this is for you. And this is for you. And this is for you. And we will never, ever, ever stop saying, Lord, how can it be for me? Really for me? And all of that is there in Joshua 13 to 19. All of that is God saying, you have no idea how good my promises, my place that I'm preparing for you is. So let's read those chapters. Let's embrace those chapters, not because they're easy, but because they're not. And because when we dive in, God will always give us something good. Now, what I've asked Carl to do now, and I'm going to ask him to come forward, instead of going into the announcements, we'll do that in a second, I wanted him to sing the song, I Can Only Imagine. Because as I was preparing this message, I thought, that's such an incredible song that invites us to consider What's it going to be like when we step into eternity and Jesus starts to show us the portion of eternity that he has prepared for us? There'll be nothing like it. But let's stand and sing that song together. What it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face. 